Thanks for checking out sermons from Pleasant Valley Community Church. We hope these messages encourage, convict, and inspire you to love and follow Jesus more faithfully as we seek to saturate our city with the hope of the gospel. Our online resources are meant to serve you, but they aren't a replacement for the face-to-face relationships that we were built for. So we really hope that if you're in Owensboro, you'll join us in person on a Sunday morning. And if you live elsewhere, you'll find a local church in your community where you can put down roots and find family. For more resources and to give financially to support the missions and ministries of Pleasant Valley, find us on social media or visit our website at www.pleasantvalley.cc. It was 53 years ago this month on the uh, campus of Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky, that revival broke out. Um, that what's known historically as the Jesus movement had started in the 70s. And so God began to pour out his spirit in little Wilmore, Kentucky, population 6,027 people, two and a half hours from here. And what started at Wilmore spread all throughout the nation's tens of thousands of people flocking to Christ. Well, now, 53 years later, it seems as though God's doing it again in the same place in Wilmore on the campus of Asbury University as we speak. Last Wednesday morning, during what appeared to be a normal chapel service, the Spirit of God uniquely showed up. And we are now on day five and almost 100 hours in of 24-7 nonstop worship prayer, confession of sin, salvation, testimonies, people and college students in particular flocking from all over the country to Asbury to experience this mighty move of God. I've talked to multiple people in the past 24 hours who have experienced it. And they said, when you walk in, the manifest presence of God is there. And it's nothing chaotic. It's People aren't doing cartwheels and going crazy. It's orderly, but the spirit of God is there and people are confessing sin and worshiping God at 3 a.m. in the morning, packed to the brim, standing room only. And so what we want to do as a church is pay attention to what God is doing all over the world. And we want to pause and pray for the Spirit of God to keep working on that college campus, but that that would spread to campuses all over the country. And we want to pray that God would do that here There's a group in this church that for 16 years has been praying for revival among us. And if we could just see a little spark, it would be an answer to so many years of prayer. Friends, the greatest need in our country is not political or economic reform. It's a heaven-sent, Holy Spirit-empowered revival where people fall on our faces before God and The church has been guilty for too long at pointing fingers at the culture, blaming all of our issues on the world. But friends, the problem in our country is not the radicals out there. It's sleepy Christians. It's Christians walking in apathy and sin and disobedience. Revival starts not at the White House or on Wall Street. It starts in the house of God with a broken, repentant people So Annie and I, this Tuesday, are taking our family to Wilmore. I want our family, I want to experience what God is doing there. What better way to spend Valentine's Day, the 14th, than by basking in the greatest love, the love of God for sinners. And so 
If any of you are interested in making the trip, just shoot us a text, message, Facebook, call, whatever. You can track us down and we can figure out a way to caravan together. But I just want us now to, to pray. So we're going to open up the front here. If you would like to come and get on your knees before the Lord, if you want to pray where you are, if you want to pray with the people around you, we're going to pray out of Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1, where the Bible says, O oh God, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. So guys, let's just, let's bow before the Lord now, whatever posture you want to take. Let's just take a few moments and plead with God to come, to continue to move at Asbury, but that the revival would spread across the state of Kentucky and across the country because we need the Lord. And so let's plead with him to come now in Jesus' name. Oh God, we pray like Isaiah, the prophet, that you would rend the heavens and come down and may the mountains quake at your presence. God, you are holy, 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 and there is none like you. And Lord, we like Isaiah bow before you with humble spirits. Father, we confess we are an unclean people with unclean lips. God, we confess we have sinned against you. Father, forgive us of self-righteousness. Forgive us of spiritual pride and elitism. Father, forgive us for pointing fingers at the world when the own problem might lie in our own hearts. Lord, forgive us for being lukewarm Christians. Lord, forgive us for neglecting your word. Forgive us for neglecting sharing the gospel Forgive us for not being bold for Christ in the workplace, in the classroom, in the basketball court. Father, forgive us for being sleepy Christians, for just going through the motions while the world around us is perishing. Lord, forgive us for selfishness and greed and pride and jealousy and 
lust and anger and bitterness and gossip, for critical spirits. Lord, forgive us for prayerlessness when we scroll on Instagram for hours and watch Netflix for days, but we don't have time to pray. God, have mercy. May your judgment and repentance begin among us, the people of God. Lord, I pray that you would continue to pour out your spirit at Asbury. Lord, have mercy on all those college students. Lord, may any that don't know you be saved and may those that are already saved experience a spiritual awakening. I pray that you would raise up young men and women to preach the gospel around the world, to be called to missions and to preach and to make disciples in their workplace. Lord, I pray that your spirit would move in all the colleges. I pray for University of Kentucky and University of Louisville and WKU and EKU and Murray State and Brescia and KWC and OCTC and the Community College and Georgetown and Transy and Center. And Lord, we pray that all across the land that college students would experience Christ and that revival would happen and that your spirit would pour out and that lives would be changed. God, may this generation be one that knows you and that doesn't just chase the dollar, but chases Christ. So Lord, we surrender our church to you. God, do it here in our little church. Do something great and humble us and get us low before you. And Lord, we pray that this church would be a great lighthouse as we seek to reach this city for Jesus. And Lord, invest in this next generation coming up. God, use us to multiply and to send out church planters and missionaries. And Lord, if there's someone in the sound of my voice that's resisting your call to go preach the gospel or to plant the church or to move across the world or just to go across the street and share Jesus with a neighbor, God, move us to obedience and Use us to be a great light in this terribly dark land. God, thank you for a little taste of what you're doing in Wilmore, and we want to see more, so God, rend the heavens. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Turn with me to the book of Haggai. We're in week two of our four-week sermon series in the book of Haggai. And while you're turning there, uh, tonight is the big night. It's the Super Bowl. It's the Philadelphia Eagles versus the Kansas City Chiefs. If you're not sure who to pull for, you can do what my wife Annie Edwards does and just pick the team who you like their uniform color the best. So Philly's green and Casey's red. So choose one of those and you'll be good to go. But an obvious hole in tonight's game is the GOAT. It's Tom Brady, who I don't personally like as a player. But <laughs> no offense, but who is the greatest of all time, probably, in the, in the NFL. He's been to 10 Super Bowls, won seven of them, five Super Bowl rings. His net worth, by the way, is $250 million, which is a little bit more than mine. And, he's, and of course, he's been, he's been married. Why y'all laughing? And he's married to, uh, a, or has been married to a, a supermodel. So from a human perspective, nobody is more enviable, if that's a word, than Tom Brady. Literally has it all. 
But years ago on 60 Minutes, Steve Croft interviewed Brady, and the interview shocked many people about Tom Brady's dissatisfaction with life. And here's what he said. And I quote, Brady said, there's times where I'm not the person I want to be. Why do I have all these Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. But me, Brady says, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. What else is there for me? And the 60 Minutes correspondent said, well, what's the answer, Tom? And Brady responded, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Tom Brady has everything the world has to offer. The money, the prestige, the accolades, the praise, the rings, the house, the supermodel, But when he reflected on all of it, the only words he could say was, God, there's got to be more than this. So when, when we don't put God number one in our lives, we'll never be satisfied. And life is only going to leave us longing for more. That's what's happening with the people of Israel and Haggai. If you weren't here last week, here's a quick summary. God's people had been in captivity for seven decades. They finally returned to their homeland in Israel. God commanded them, rebuild the temple. That was the number one order of priority because where God's temple was, that was God's house. His spirit uniquely manifested himself in the temple. So without the rebuilding of God's temple, which had been destroyed by the Babylonians, there's no true worship of God. There's no true experience of the spirit of God. So the people started rebuilding the temple, but then they got busy. They got lazy building their own kingdoms and their own lives, and they put God on the back burner. And so what God told them last week in verse four is, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while my house lies in ruins? God said, look at the pictures of your house on Instagram and then look at my house. Your house has nicely painted shutters and a manicured lawn and white picket fence and surround sound and security system and big screens and all the rooms. And and you got this nice little home, but my house lies in shambles. And God's saying, where's your priorities? You're chasing the American dream and you're apathetic about my kingdom. That was last week, and now God says in verse 5, now therefore, in other words, because you've not put me number one, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So today, God is calling them and us to introspection, to self-examination. Consider your life. You have sown much and harvested little. Look at the contrast, much, little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns money does so to put them into a bag with holes. Here's what God's saying. When you don't put me number one in everything in your life, you'll plant the crops, but the harvest will never be what you want. 
You'll have food in the cupboard and drink in the cup, but you'll only still be hungry and thirsty. He says, you'll have a little bit of money in the bank, but you're only going to want more and it'll never be enough. He says, you'll get that body you want when you work out. There's always somebody that's going to look better at the gym. And God says, no matter how hard you try and all the things you acquire, you can chase fulfillment and satisfaction and pleasure, and you'll get just enough of it to make you angry because it'll never be enough to satisfy you until you put me number one. The people in Israel, they had a house. They had some crops. They had a wife and kids. They had all the things, but they weren't satisfied. And so in the spirit of Haggai, here's what the question is for us this morning. Are you satisfied with your life? It's a very introspective question. The theme in verse five and verse nine of our text is God says, consider your ways. Consider your life. Look at the data, but not just the things you have. But look at your level of joy and satisfaction with it. The question isn't just, do I have some money in the bank? Do I have a relationship? Do I have some romance? Do I have a career? Do I have vacation time? You can have all of that, but how's your joy? How's your satisfaction level? Consider that. And what God's going to say is, you're going to have all of this over here and your joy tanks on empty. You can have a lover. You can have career and all of it. And on the inside, you're only longing for more. Because there's a there's a hole inside all of us that only God is number one can fill. So here's the question. Questions, plural. In what areas of your life are you currently dissatisfied? So I want you to think through personal life, family life, financial life, work life, spiritual life, physical, I mean, all of it. Put it all out on the table. What areas are you longing for more? What accomplishments have you secured in life and it's not what you thought it would be? It didn't fulfill you. And now I want you to ask this dangerous spirit-led question. Okay, are these dissatisfactions and frustrations in my life potentially rooted in my unwillingness to put God, number one, in everything? And what Haggai is saying here is the answer is yes. In other words, it is often true that our dissatisfaction and lack of fulfillment in life is rooted in not primarily the economy or inflation or the people we work with or our spouse that's not meeting our needs at an acceptable rate to us. That's not where the problem is. The connection is our own sin and idolatry and not putting God, number one, in everything. That's the root issue. We got to stop blaming our dissatisfaction on other people and the climate and the culture and people in the White House, and we got to look inside. That's what Haggai is saying to the people. Anything we put before God, even good things, 
to try to fulfill us. It's, it's only going to eat us alive in the end. American writer David Foster Wallace said at a commencement speech for Kenyon College, he's the guy with great hair. Here's what he said. He says, if we prioritize money and things, we'll never feel we have enough because we can always make more. There's always somebody richer. There's always somebody more successful. There's always a bigger house. There's always a little more security we can have. He says, though, if you, if you prioritize our own body and beauty and sexual allure, we'll always feel ugly. And when time and age and gray hairs start showing in the bald spot, we will die a million deaths before our loved ones finally plant us in the ground. If our main priority is going after power and influence and climbing the corporate ladder and prestige, you can do that, but you will end up feeling weak, afraid, and paranoid. If our main priority is our intelligence, if I can just get another degree, then I'll be happy. If I can read another book or figure out more stuff and be perceived as smart, we will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out. So God designed us in the universe so that life only works and clicks and offers maximum fulfillment when God is number one in everything. Your joy hinges upon your willingness to prioritize Christ over all of it. Colossians chapter one, verse number 17, the Bible says, Christ is before all things, and by Christ, all things hold together. Jesus is the nucleus that holds the universe together. And if Christ were to cease to exist, the whole universe would explode into nothing. And then in the very next verse, the Bible says, so that Christ might come to have first place in everything. So here's what the Bible teaches. Christ is preeminent and supreme over Everything, the rocks cry out, the tidal wave obeys the sound of his voice, the rain only falls when God says rain, the earth tilts when God says tilt, the whole universe orients around obeying Christ. So Christ is number one in the universe, which means Christ must be number one in our little lives or our little lives don't work. You know, Eastern religions want to talk about karma and positive energy. And on Facebook, everybody's like, I'm sending good vibes. But the, but the centerpiece that makes life work and humans flourish is not an impersonal energy or positive vibe. It's a person and his name is Jesus. So unless Christ is number one and supreme in everything in our lives, our whole existence will end up being a treadmill where we're striving for satisfaction and we'll die not having found it because we were created for God. So one of my favorite books I read this past year was a biography on Eugene Peterson. It was called A Burning in My Bones. I commend it to you. 
But Peterson loved to retreat uh, in the summers in Montana. He had a little house out there on a lake, and um, he recalls the story where one morning he was watching the behavior of these little tree swallows, these little birds. I'm quoting from Mark Boda here on Peter's experience. Peterson. Peterson recalled how for several weeks he had observed a group of little swallows gathering food for their mates and chicks, and finally was delighted to see three babies perched on an old branch four feet above the surface of the lake. He was about to watch the three chicks learn how to fly. One adult bird got alongside the chicks and started shoving them out toward the end of the branch, pushing, pushing, pushing. The end one fell off. Somewhere between the branch and the water, four feet below, the little bird started flapping its wings, and the chick was off flying on its own. Then the second one. But the third little bird was not to be bullied. At the last possible moment, his grip on the branch loosened just enough so that he swung downward, then tightened again, bulldog tenacious. But the parent was persistent. He pecked at the desperately clinging talons until it was more painful for the little chick to hang on than risk the insecurities of flying. He finally released his grip, and the inexperienced little wings began pumping. The mama bird knew what the little chick did not, that it would fly, and that there was no longer, there was no danger in making it do what it was perfectly designed to do. And then Peterson concludes with this. He says, birds have feet and can walk. Birds have talons and can grasp a branch securely. Birds can walk. Birds can cling. But flying is what birds were created to do. And not until they fly are they living at their best gracefully and beautifully. There are many good things in this life we can pursue relationships, families, careers, investments, recreation, leisure, all good things. But it is only the pursuit of the kingdom of God and the glory of Christ that is the only pursuit that will finally awaken our dissatisfied souls because God created us to fly for Christ. Then we will never truly experience joy and fulfillment in life until we, loose, until we loosen our talons on the things of this earth and we release everything to Christ and fly unashamedly for him, which means everything, even the good things, fall under the feet of Christ. Some of us are guilty of idol worshiping our kids. If we love our kids more than we love Christ, it's idolatry. Kids are amazing. They're awesome. They're gifts. We should love them and serve them. But we serve and love our kids best when we don't love them more than we love Christ. Because what they need is not to know that they're the center of the universe, but Christ is the center of the universe. That is the greatest gift we can give our young people. Show them the glory of Christ. Good things, money, careers, family, relationships, 
good things when they become God things, that's bad. What good thing might we be putting before Christ that this morning the Spirit is saying, reverse that priority? Now, that's God's message to the people. And here's the second part of the message. We're going to go a step deeper. When we don't put God, number one, in everything, we will often fall under God's discipline. Now, this is something we don't talk about enough as Christians. I've probably not preached on this enough. It's so important in our sanctification that we have a heavenly Father who loves us enough to discipline us. And here's what we're praying this morning that Some of us right now, unbeknownst to us, are actually under the discipline of God. We've been blaming it on the devil. We've been blaming it on the culture or inflation. But it's actually God in sovereign love and care frustrating our plans and lives because we will not put him number one. And that is the kindest thing that God could do. I've done everything. Why isn't this working? I just can't get over the hump. And God all along is saying, I'm going to keep frustrating your life until you take that idol and you surrender it to me. That's what happens in verse 7 through 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. So remember, they've not built the house of God. They've been too busy. They've been apathetic. They want the house to be built. They just want somebody else to pay for it. And so because of that, because they won't put God number one, starting at verse nine, here's God's discipline. Look at this. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, God says, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And God says, I have called for a drought. The devil is not responsible for this drought. Global warming is not responsible for this drought. God is to get the attention of his people to humble themselves and repent. I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Friends, this is the discipline of God. I want us to see it clearly in the text. Look at what God is saying. Go back to verse 4 for just a sec. Because is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while my house lies in ruins? Look at that word ruins in verse four that's underlined that describes God's house. It's in shambles. It's frustrated. It's not thriving. Now go back to verse 11. Look at the word drought. 
God says, I'm sending a drought on you because of your disobedience. The word drought right there in verse 11 comes from the same Hebrew root word for ruins in verse four. Now, if if you're not putting all that together, here's what that means. God is connecting the ruin of his temple to the ruin they are experiencing in their land and harvest. It's a cause and effect relationship. God is saying it is precisely because of your unwillingness to build my house that I am sending hard times on the land. They are under God's discipline for not prioritizing God's house. And so verse 11 is just saying this. God says, that drought you're experiencing, I'm the one that is commanding the rain not to fall. God says, that little puny harvest that you had so much hope in, I'm the one that told the crops not to grow. God says, that money that I blessed you with, that you should have given to build my house, but you invested it and hoarded it up in your own kingdom. And now that stock is taking, hello, I control Wall Street. We don't put God number one in our lives and everything. We will endure his discipline. And then you go to the New Testament and we see the same thing. This is so important. In Hebrews 12, look at the teaching. So I just, guys, as we're going through this, just ask the Holy Spirit, God, is this for me? Am I under your discipline? This is so important. Remember, God's discipline is always an invitation for repentance. It's an act of love and grace. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? But they disciplined us, that's our earthly fathers, for a short time as it seemed best to them. But our heavenly father disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The Bible teaches us that one of the evidences that we are a true child of God is that we come under the discipline of God. And if we don't experience the discipline of God, we're not legitimate children of God. Now, the Father disciplines us not to be mean or vindictive or because he's angry or irritable. The father disciplines his kids because he loves his kids. And the father knows that any sin in our life or anything we put before him, God knows that will hurt us and no father wants their kids to be hurt. So he will discipline us as a means of grace 
to bring us back to himself. Just like the three-year-old who runs out the front door of the house and they're running towards the highway and there's cars going 60 miles an hour by and the parent runs out and is not pleasant with the child. They grab them and maybe they discipline them or ground them or however you discipline these days. And it's not because the parent hates the kid or is mean to the kid. They're saving the kid's life. You would be an unloving parent to let the kid run out in the highway. Our father loves us too much to let sin destroy our lives. And so when you experience difficulties and frustration in God's discipline, it's because he loves you too much to let you stay where you are. First, we should rather God wound us than leave us in our sin because his discipline hurts us, but our unrepentant sin will kill us. In Haggai 1, verse 5 and 9, God tells his people, consider your ways. And that's how I want us to conclude today. Could it be that some of us are currently under the discipline of the Father? For sin or disobedience in our life. Here's what Mark Bodo says. And then we're going to pray through this. He says, Haggai is not suggesting that every experience of suffering or hardship is automatically a sign of God's discipline in our lives. We're not saying that every time we get a headache, God's zapping us because we lied. It's not teaching necessarily. However, many within the church today have moved to the opposite extreme, where there is little sense or expectation of the intrusion of God into our everyday affairs. In light of this, experiences of hardship should always become opportunities for reflection in our lives, turning us heavenward to ask hard questions. These questions are not expressions of rebellion, but rather the honest voice of a child reliant on a parent. Such questions, however, should be accompanied by questions directed inward as we ask God to search us for those areas that do not reflect the priorities of the kingdom. If under the searchlight of God's word, we have need of repentance, we should turn from our sins and walk in a way consistent with this penitence. So here's what we're going to do at this time. We're going to walk through a series of reflective questions with the Holy Spirit. We're going to ask hard questions of God. So let's, let's, let's bow our heads, and I'm going to walk us through six individual questions one at a time, and then we're going to take a minute or two to pray through each one. But before we do that, just let's prepare our hearts. So just take a moment and talk to God. Because you're about to ask God some really difficult questions. And we need to be prepared that he might answer them. So just have a moment and prepare your heart for deep conversation with God. And then I'll walk us through. Okay, here's the first question. I'm gonna put each question on the screens. If it helps you to see it, if you're more visual, you can look at it. Here's the first question. In what areas of my life am I dissatisfied or longing for more? Just take that before the Lord. 
In what areas of your life are you dissatisfied or longing for more? Ask the Holy Spirit to help you see those areas. Okay, now here's a second question. Again, if you wanna look at the screen, you can. Are these dissatisfactions rooted in my failure to put God number one in a particular area of my life? So here's the question. Holy Spirit, here's where I'm frustrated and struggling. God, is there a connection between that and some sin in my life that I'm not giving over to you? Ask the Spirit to supernaturally show you those connections. Okay, question number three is similar, but we're gonna ask it a different way. Is there any unconfessed or unrepentant sin in my life? That just means, is there any sin in my life that I've not turned away from? Now, here's the thing on this one. We all have blind spots. Because every one of us in this room right now, me included, we have some sin in our life that we're not even consciously aware of, maybe. And so we have to ask the Holy Spirit, and, there, and we're gonna put some verses on the screen that can help guide you through how to do this. Spirit, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. So we're gonna ask in this prayer, the Holy Spirit to take out the heavenly scalpel and do heart surgery and to cut open our hearts and any sin in there we're not currently aware of that he will bring it to the surface. And sometimes we call this conviction and convict us and show us the sin. So pray that prayer right now, God, Reveal any sin in me that I've not confessed and repented of. Okay, now here's, here's the question. We have to have the Holy Spirit's help. Number four, as a result of this sin that maybe God's brought to your mind, am I currently under God's discipline? If so, in what ways is God disciplining me? So guys, here's the prayer. God, this thing that's not going right, this problem, this frustration, this drama, this sickness, God, could it be this is your discipline because you love me and you're seeking to get my attention? I, I can't connect those dots for us. It has to be the Spirit, so just ask him humbly, Father, am I under your discipline? And if so, show me how so I can make it right with you. Okay, here's question number five. What is God trying to teach me through this discipline? Holy Spirit, just ask this question, what, what lesson do I need to learn? God, what are you trying to teach me? I'm open ears, Father, here I am. Ask those questions of your Father.
You know, here's the final question. Am I willing to receive God's discipline as an act of his love and repent today? Okay, so anything the Lord has brought to your heart over the past several minutes, any sin, anything unconfessed, now is the time we turn from it. Are we willing to repent and to obey God? And so there's, there's a spirit of freedom here for this. This front of the room is open. If you want to come here to the front and get on your knees before God and confess your sin, I invite you to do that. Maybe you're sitting by a spouse and the Spirit has convicted you of something in your marriage and you just need to squeeze their hand and you need to confess that to them and ask their forgiveness. Kids, maybe it's something you need to confess to your parents parents, something to your kids. Maybe there's another member of this church that you've sinned against or they sinned against you and the spirit is moving in your heart and saying, you got to go reconcile. Maybe there's someone that's not even here today and the relationship is broken and severed and God's telling you to go to their house or to call them right now. Now is when we obey and repent. So whatever the Lord leads you to do, there is freedom in confession. There is liberation in repentance. So lean into what the Spirit is leading you to do and make it right with God and receive His amazing grace. Over these next few moments, take your time and then we'll sing together. Thanks for checking out sermons from Pleasant Valley Community Church. For more resources and to give financially to support the missions and ministries of Pleasant Valley, find us on social media or visit our website at www.pleasantvalley.cc.